Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast. I'm the host, Adam Albrick, and today I'm joined by a very special guest here at Marketing Day 2020, Jim Wiesmeyer, who is a Washington policy analyst for Pro Farmer and Farm Journal. Welcome, Jim. It's good to be here. Thinking back over your career, how has things changed compared to when you started to where it is now? Oh, significantly. When I first started in the mid-70s, we didn't, uh, we had a global market, but not what it is now. So you could have more domestic tilted farm programs, uh, such as acreage reduction programs for if you got in a burdensome, you know, carryover situation. Now, uh, that wouldn't work. And in, in fact, uh, acreage reduction, uh, you know, programs are prohibited, you know, by, you know, farm legislation. The dairy policy has always been a problem, uh, but it, uh, over the years where where Congress has tried to, to do the regional type programs versus uh, small to medium operators, and I think they finally got it uh, right in the 2018 Farm Bill. And on export policy, we've gone from controlling the amount of wheat and corn that we sent to the Soviet Union in the 70s to uh, now Russia being the world's largest wheat exporter for two years running. And we've seen the significance over the decades of uh, you know trade policy that frequently gives not only grain producers, but uh, uh, livestock producers the margins they need for a profit. Now you're a reporter. So what drew you to this field in the first place? Well, I was at Doan Agricultural Service in St. Louis right after college, and I worked with their market research people. And uh, frankly, I got to be a drinking buddy with the publications manager of the Doan's Ag Report. And one day, I wasn't there too many years, he used to be the Washington uh, uh, you know, contact for, for Doan. He was there in Washington, and then he came back to St. Louis. and. He asked me one day, he goes, you've got a lot of spunk. Would you like to go to Washington, D.C.? And uh, that was the mentor uh, that I think everyone needs. And uh, I took the bait. I was one of the first ones in my you know, my own family to leave the you know southern Illinois uh, area to, uh, you know, to go east. And I was only going to stay there five years. And now it's been uh, a long time. So you've uh, you've been in the swamp for quite a while, is what they say. <laughs> I have seen it go from uh, bipartisanship when I first started to the most visceral relationships between the parties. But you know, the officials, especially at USDA, would be they Democratic administration and Republican administrations have always been gracious, uh, at least to me, and I think most other analysts and re and reporters. Um, the White House. I was a White House correspondent. Covered at the tail end of Nixon all the way to the present. And uh, you know, presidents have to have it uh, up, up, up in their brain in order to become president. I, I really believe that. And of course, I had my favorites. I thought Reagan was the best president I covered because it was what you see is what you get. And he was very gracious to anyone, whether they were on his staff or, or any human being. And I think that's what the public saw. But that's you know what he was like behind the scenes. Do you have any interesting stories from any run-ins with uh, the presidents or vice presidents? Not the presidents or vice presidents. I, I personally interviewed uh, uh, Reagan and Carter that time, and I remember uh, one of the Carter answered the questions in detail, very my, my, uh, very myopic detail, and. 
President Reagan, when I got to a question, uh, he would say, and you can just hear him say it, I'm not going to answer that because that's why I have a cabinet. And, and I think that was one of his successes and Carter's uh, faults, that he got too involved in too, in too many things. Uh, the, the stories at USDA, I remember I worked also on a wire service that that uh, you know, Pro Farmer had at the time, Futures World News, and in Pro Farmer we covered an item. I was walking the halls of USDA Economic Research Service one day, and I saw a uh, country analyst, a Mideast country analyst, had flags on a on a map, and uh, it was Iraq. And I, I said, I said, well, what are those flags for? And he goes, well, I'm tracking the amount of wheat they're buying, and it's interesting. They don't normally buy this much wheat this soon. And I go, well, why do you think that's the case? And he goes, well, you know, if I wouldn't know any better, I think they're ready to have war with Iran. We ran that on a, four, I think it was 80, I can't remember the 81 maybe. We ran that about a week before, and they did, the Iran-Iraq war. That following week, a CIA person came into my office in Washington, D.C. and just quizzed me. Uh, would I file information to them, et cetera? They would pay, and I go, all you have to do is subscribe. <laughs> that was one of the more interesting ones. I'm guessing it's not every day the CIA walks into a reporter's door, at least in agriculture. <laughs> at least in agriculture. I'll tell you what they should have walked into a number of ag reporters when we had, when President Carter had his grain embargo against the then Soviet Union because Mondale, as vice president, you know, uh, uh, tried to convince Carter not, not to do it. Uh, but the CIA uh, said, uh, told Carter that uh, we'd have them on their knees because they were having the Olympics at the time. What, what happened was that uh, the Soviet Union uh, liquidated a lot of their livestock industry going into the Olympics, and they had more than enough meat to fulfill not only their domestic uh, use, but international use for the Olympics. That taught me that uh, livestock is a grain reserve for countries, and, and I never forgot it. Now, you mentioned a little bit ago about a possible breakdown between the two different parties in Washington, D.C., and you've witnessed that over time. Yeah, there's no possible. There is a breakdown. <laughs> but one thing about agriculture, it's always kind of been one of the more bipartisan aspects in Washington, D.C. Is that still the case? No. I, I say this regretfully. I think it'll hopefully go back in the next farm bill, but this last one, 2018, got pretty ugly uh, relative to the food stamp uh, uh, issues. And uh, in fact, uh, and I'm not going to mention names, I'm still a gentleman, but a Democrat on the House Ag Committee just used some terminology to describe the House uh, Ag Committee Chairman Mike Conaway, a very good uh, soldier, if you will, uh, from Texas in just unsurly terms. And uh, uh, Colin Peterson is one of the smartest ag policy people I've met in my almost, uh, you know, going on 48 years of covering the business of agriculture. And he got into a frayed relationship with the you know, committee to, uh, chairman. So maybe, hopefully that's an aberration. But I, I think as you're seeing the urban-rural divide uh, get further, the more urban state members on the House and Senate Agriculture Committee, especially the Senate Ag Committee, are, have different interests now as opposed to what we would call normal production agriculture. And so I think that could uh, you know, lead to some more heated battles ahead. And I think that's a very interesting point and where I'd like to go next. Congressman Peterson has 
has made it known that there are a bunch of people now on his committee who do not come from agriculture. They don't have any experience with that, so he's had to, over time, he's had to do a lot of educating for his own caucus there. What challenges does that present then going forward when you do have fewer and fewer rural representatives and more urban people that you know, we're further and further removed from the farm. That has to present a weird dichotomy. Yeah, it's it's a hurdle. But I'll tell you, this is where commodity groups and farmers come in handy. Uh, your listening audience don't ever uh, th- don't ever think that your voice is not heard at the committee level, and that's why your representatives, not in Congress, but in your farm groups, the Farm Bureau, NFU, etc. And especially your commodity groups, uh, you know, corn, soybeans, uh, the Pork Producers Council, NCBA, uh, you know, sugar beet, I mean, my goodness, the sugar industry and sugar cane. Uh, they have a, one of the most effective lobby groups. They, they're educators and they educate lawmakers. But you're correct. Uh, Colin uh, has openly said uh, the, the farm club, as he calls it, it's almost like a baseball term. Uh, and, and, you know, needs a little more educating. And I think if he does run, and we should have the announcement probably uh, late January, early February, it's, I think it's primarily that, that I think he needs a couple more years at least to, uh, you know, uh, you know help, uh, help educate him. Looking at some of the trends going forward, in the last couple of years we've seen alternative proteins enter the market, and that's, of course, caused disruptions in some of the traditional protein areas. You think of livestock and the meat, uh, you think of dairy, things like that. What do you see going forward as, as how some of these trends play out and consumer habits change as well? Oh, yes. Uh <laughs> Alternative uh, meat to me is more beef, but uh, but I'm not I'm not the norm right now. I think this uh, uh, the impossible uh, uh, meat or you know whatever they call it. I think it's more than a niche market. Now that that doesn't mean it's going to take over the retail counters, but you know the pork producers had an event a couple of weeks ago in in D.C. in which they took on some of these alternatives for using the word pork, and and I don't blame them. Uh, unless it can truly be identified as pork. Uh, Because the dairy industry didn't do that in the early days of the alternative dairy products. Uh, They weren't real dairy products, you know. And you go through any major supermarket, and they're a good goodly part of the of the, of the counter space in in the in the dairy section uh, so I think NPPC uh, learned that so they're challenging uh, early um, on the consumer side it's what is demanded and I think that there are qualities that uh, some consumers have identified that they may like in some of these alternative products but the focus, I think, is just going to start on really the ingredients that are in these alternative products. They've had a free ride here for over the last few years. Now we're going to see perhaps the Consumer Report magazine and others kind of dissect what's in it, how do they get it to taste the way they do, uh, et cetera. So uh, I think that's you know good not only for consumers, but for all industry stakeholders. You know, there are so many topics that you obviously cover in in Washington, D.C. and across the country. One big thing that continuously keeps coming up is climate change. Now, there's no political statements being made on this podcast one way or another, but it is a topic that's going to continue to, to really be out there. Ultimately, in your 
coverage and talking to all the experts that you do, what role do you think agriculture has in playing in this part? Well, I'll tell you what they've had so far and then maybe where it's going. Uh, I, I don't think I have to tell you or your audience that uh, the ma- vast majority of farmers are the best conservationists and the, the best environmentalists. Uh, they've proven that. It's the exception that gets played up by the, the, by the media that we have now, and it's amplified on the internet, etc. Well, that's the world we live in. We have to accept that, but we can confront it, however. Uh, But, you know, some of the best farm bill programs that don't get a lot of press play are the conservation programs, the conservation reserve program, uh, EQIP and things like that, Uh, the the state and, and federal sharing type programs. Now, you mentioned climate change or whatever you want to call it. Agriculture, I think, has an opportunity in the years ahead to turn a, a potential negative into a positive with the, you know, you, you know, sequestering that carbon. And that could be one of the features of farm programs of the future. That's a win-win to, to allow a payment. Uh, you know, you don't want it to be a carbon tax, uh, but there are many ways to skin that cat. But uh, I always like programs that take a negative and turn it into a positive, just uh, such as the birth of the Conservation Reserve Program, that it eventually turned out to, you know, to be. So, yeah, I think that's one of the avenues that you're going to see in the decades ahead, because farm policy is going to have to be not evolutionary anymore, like the way we've had the last few bills. It's going to have to be revolutionary in time because the industry is changing so much, not only because of the urban-rural divide that we talked about earlier, but also the intra-agriculture divide that you're seeing between the smaller to middle-sized operators to what we would call larger operators, that uh, one program doesn't fit all. So it's going to be, and it's very controversial, not only within agriculture, but within uh, um, the education levels, because, uh, you know, say crop insurance, uh, which is the best you know, uh, you know, farm and, and shared program I've seen in my career. It's the best risk management tool. However, the, the, the negative people that look at ag policy will focus on the amount of money, you know, funding uh, that's paid out with the about 62% you know, subsidy for buy-up insurance. Well, they don't talk about the huge checks that these larger operators pay to to have skin in the game. That's going to become a, a larger issue, and hopefully they will not cap uh, entrance into the crop insurance program, but those battles are ahead, whether the industry wants to believe it or not. Right, and you change out some of those pieces in terms of long-standing representatives like Congressman Peterson, things like that. Who knows what's going to happen? Well, we've got Senator Senate Ag Committee Chairman Pat Roberts. I mean, he's a journalist by his initial training. So, of course, my heart was with him from the get one, and I knew him as a congressman. He's leaving. He, he's not running for reelection, and he was a longstanding believer in crop insurance. And I remember the ARPA of 2000. Uh, he, along with Senator uh, Kerry, 
you know, from uh, uh, Nebraska, you know, you know, uh, push that through. Uh, again, Colin Peterson, you mentioned, you talk about a believer in risk management tools. He knows the program, and he helped morph uh, the dairy program into an insurance type program because he believed it. Uh, again, we better have those challengers of change ahead because it's going to take some innovative policy to uh, you know get that uh, you know safety net. Well, as they say, elections do have consequences, and that's that's very true. So you know we'll see what happens there. But speaking of the future, though, I do want to kind of ask you and, and pick your mind. What do you see is kind of coming around the corner for agriculture? You've mentioned a few things in our in our short time here, but from your vantage point of where you are, the people that you talk to, what do you kind of see is what's next? Well, the uh, I see a rosy future for the uh, state of agriculture. So don't give up with the uh, prices. This too shall pass. The reason I say that is grounded in history, where with the rise of the rest in middle class uh, outside this country. And any time that you raise the middle class and numbers of people, they improve their diets, and that means protein. And uh, we're one of the best countries to raise that protein, be it in the grain sector, uh, in, in the feed components, or in the uh, uh, or in the meat area, in the dairy industry, etc. There are some potential very volatile issues ahead relative to the corn industry uh, when it pertains to the ethanol program, which was a mega change when it came out. It made corn king overnight. But in 2022, the authority for the renewable fuel standard expires. Now, that doesn't mean it cannot be extended. However, that's going to be a fight not only to have that RFS survive, but the state of the automobile industry in this great country is dramatically changing. My father came up through the uh, automobile industry. And in about 2030 or so, uh, you're gonna have 30% or maybe even more of automobiles being either hybrids or you know battery operated cars. Well. The ethanol program works on gasoline consumed, so you can see the impact there. So the pressures are going to be involved there. Uh, there's other changes, uh, the trade policy. We're going to have to get additional market access around the world and because as our we're, we're in the, to the second industrial revolution in agriculture right now with the ag robots in the dairy industry, in the, the picking of the horticultural crops in the southwest, in California. Uh, the big data is becoming bigger data. Uh, you have to have analysts how to read them. Uh, so you talk about changes that's going to occur. Then you get to not only the, ge the, the, the genetics of seed, but gene editing. And it's, it's hard to kill a corn crop now. We saw that last year. And you're going to see ever higher trending yields in the major crops. And, and so that means policy is going to have to, uh, you know, keep up, whether it's monetary policy, fiscal policy, trade policy, uh, energy policy, et cetera. So we've got some challenges ahead. Well, we'll end on this one, but it might not necessarily be an easy one to end on, like I typically like to throw out there. However, we have a major election coming up, a presidential election that's going to be very volatile, you could say. But my question is, how do you see it all playing out? Let's say if President Trump does win a second term, what does that mean for agriculture? Or if whomever the successful Democrat candidate is were to win the White House? 
What does that mean? Yeah, that's a good question because so many people focus on who's going to win and they don't ask that next question. What, what are the impacts? A second term Trump administration, I think, will be different from a first term. Uh, can you imagine a Trump that's uh, used to be, you know, being president? Trump on steroids, if you will. I'll let the gasp uh, go out there. That's not saying that he hasn't done any good things. He has. He's shaken up Washington, and I love every second of that. Maybe it's the way he does it. But I think he's going to focus on different things in a second term, and I think he'll bring in different people to the administration. Uh, on a Democrat side, it really does pertain who... Uh, who it is, because uh, they're, uh, the, the, the number of people that they have running and their ideologies, we've got a socialist running, uh, we've got uh, socialist leaning, uh, we've got Elizabeth Warren who likes to uh, you know, get after the big in industry, uh, in agriculture, Etc. And she would probably use the executive orders just like Trump has. So she may wouldn't even have to go through Congress. Amy Klobuchar would be a moderate that I think agriculture would like because she's been on the Senate Ag Committee and I think she's you know fair-minded. But you really have to see, and also not only who controls the White House, but who's going to control the chambers, uh, both the House and the Senate. If the Democrats, for example, controlled all three units. Uh, there would be wholesale changes uh, in, in policy. Uh, your taxes would obviously go up. Uh, that would probably lead to an initial U.S. recession just out of, out of feelings, if nothing else. And that's not a, a political statement. It would just be how the market would react to that. Uh, the, the, the Democrats could, on the Senate, if they control all chambers, they could look at that 60-vote uh, uh, you know, filibuster and, and do away with it and only get 50 votes to get anything done. If that were to be the case, then we would become more like a European-type parliament where the controlling party really can get whatever they want. Uh, if you have a split uh, Congress, which I think most Americans like and which I've seen as a checks and balances, then you, you'd have to have the meetings of the mind, which I think is always good outside of this uh, increased use of uh, uh, executive orders that I don't think has been a good development because I like the rule of law you know, to go there. So what I just said is we're going to see continued changes and it could be even more. I, I ended on this. A question I I get at meetings a lot is, will the uncivilness in Washington ever end? And I answer yes. It's when the minority party truly becomes a minority party, and that's defined as they cannot come back into power the next election. See, it's too close right now. The opposing party can get right back into power with the next election. Once that occurs, then to get anything, they're going to have to get along. And uh, it, it'll come. It won't come this election. But sooner or later, one party is really going to flub up, and the Americans uh, will have the final voice on that. Well, we will see. There's a lot of time between right now as of today and November, but that will come up very quickly. Jim, just thank you very much for spending some time with us, and uh, we enjoyed the conversation. Anytime. That's Jim Wiesmeyer, Washington Policy Analyst for Pro Farmer and Farm Journal. That's going to do it for this episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com. 